We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me here at the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc. Today, we are speaking with Doug Nemesek. He's the Chief Medical Officer of Cigna. Um, I know a lot of our listeners are always interested in the perspective of the payers and how to work with them better and what they need to be doing to, you know, up reimbursements, all that kind of thing. Um, Before we jump into that, I'll take a minute and actually talk a little bit about, um, because I know I never do this, with uh, Circle Social. So many people know that we're a marketing firm and geez, now we have over $100 million in uh, addiction treatment campaign data since um, 2014. I work with a lot of providers, um, both mom and pop shops, as well as some of the largest providers in the country. And so we have a lot of campaign data across AdWords, Facebook, TV, radio, business development. We know where people call, what they're calling for, what converts, what you need to say on the phone, all this kind of data um, that's really, really helpful. And we've taken that. And as many of you know, you probably follow me on LinkedIn. I'm in a different center with my team every two weeks these days, right? And so we do a lot of on-site consulting to help centers either looking for a turnaround if they're struggling with things or to accelerate growth. So things are going really well, but they need to get to that next level. You know, we know what to do. We've got the data. We've done this, God, I don't know how many times already. Um, But we can go in and we look at the business as a whole, right? We'll look at the clinical protocols. We'll look at the business development. We'll look at center operations. We'll look at admissions and obviously marketing, and then come up with a unique, tailored, comprehensive strategy for that center to achieve its goals. This is also why we help out private equity with due diligence in terms of um, acquisitions that they're looking to make, and we help owners out with exit strategies. So if they're looking to sell the business, we'll go in and tell them what the investors, what the private equity firms, and what their buyers are looking for, and how to make sure that they can get the highest valuation for their business. So if you ever have questions on that or need some help yourself, please feel free to reach out to us at Circle Social Inc. You can always email me personally at nick at circlesocialinc.com. Um, and today's show, I definitely want to uh, highlight our wonderful sponsor. So we have um, the Revenue Solution. They are a fantastic provider of cash collection patient responsibility services. The Revenue Solution is the industry's premier service dedicated to helping treatment centers collect patient responsibilities such as deductibles, copays, out-of-pockets, travel expenses, paid-to-patient checks, and services denied by insurance carriers. Servicing facilities of all sizes nationwide, the Revenue Solutions holistic process ensures compliance while providing a game-changing stream of new income, all without adding any new cost to the center. The Revenue Solution works strictly on a contingency basis, filling your bank account from day one. Call 844-314-8867 or email info at therevenuesolution.com today. A lot of treatment providers have um made use of their wonderful services and being able to reclaim a really significant amount of money. So I highly recommend if that's something that you're not strong at, reach out to them and they can definitely help you get on track and start collecting some of that patient responsibility that is maybe um, sitting on the table. So today we're speaking with Doug Nemesek. He, again, is the Chief Medical Officer of Cigna and he is just a fantastic resource. You know, I met Doug last year, I think, um, and you know we've connected once or twice 
here or there and was finally able to get him on the podcast. He's a very busy man. <laughs> so it took us quite a while to get this arranged, but I'm so happy that we were able to do that. And one point that I always like to make um, when you're working with the insurance payers is that there's so much value and so much benefit to partnering with them because at the end of the day, everyone's trying to make a better world for the patients and have better outcomes. And so if we can partner when we do that, you know, obviously we're going to have our differences and sometimes it's kind of built into the relationship is, you know, maybe the payer is trying to bring down reimbursement and the provider would like more, you know, that's just going to be part of that conversation at all times. But that doesn't mean that we still can't have a very positive, fruitful relationship that is centered around the best experience and the best outcomes for the patient. So I think that comes out very clearly in the conversation we have with Doug. And then we get to some very um, interesting specifics, you know, in terms of what are payers looking for now, at least Cigna, you know, you can speak for Cigna. What are they looking for now? What's going to help you get higher levels of reimbursement? You know, where is the kind of industry going in terms of reimbursement? And then all these things that are complicated around, you know, value-based care and ACOs and bundled payments and a lot of these things that are kind of complicated that we need to understand. So Doug gives us a lot of insight there. I appreciate his time. Let's jump into the conversation. Glad we're finally able to connect here. Um, really happy to have you on the show. Can you just tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are and what your position is over at Cigna? Sure. Thank you for having me on, on the show today. I'm, I'm Doug Nemesek, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer for Behavioral Health at Cigna. Cigna is a global health services company, and our mission is to improve the health, well-being, and peace of mind of those we serve. And so my role as the Chief Medical Officer for Behavioral Health is really to make sure that our customers have access to high-quality care for mental health and substance use conditions, as well as to really help drive our push towards improving whole-person care and, and whole-person health, so looking at integration between behavioral health, substance use, with medical conditions, with pharmacy issues, with disability, and things like that. I'm a psychiatrist by training, and prior to uh, working with Cigna, I, I also led a large mental health and substance use practice uh, in Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota. How long have you been with Cigna now as the chief medical officer? I've been at Cigna for 17 years. Wow. And so you mentioned that there's a big focus on this holistic approach to the patient. So let's kind of start real broad there. You know, we've got our fee-for-service that's been going on forever. There's bundled payments now, value-based care. You know, what's Cigna looking to do in these areas as it regards addiction treatment? Value-based care has really been around for a long time, especially on the medical side. So Cigna has been very active in value-based care and building collaborative partnerships with primary care physicians and even specialty physician practices across the country. Cigna now has, I think, more than 250 such arrangements out there. We're way behind on the addiction side and, and mental health side of Cigna and even just the industry, but really starting to look at value-based relationships in a new way from the, from the goal that we really want to improve quality and improve the outcomes of care in addiction treatment. We always are looking to improve affordability and make care more affordable for everybody as well. And value-based care really helps us try to drive alignment of those goals with the provider organization, the addiction program, and, and Cigna as the payer. We've got a couple pilots now with some bundled 
service agreements and 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 things and so we're we're starting down that path in in addiction now and and really excited about where this can go over the next several years um can you elaborate a little bit for some of our listeners who might not know exactly what the difference is between a bundled payment and value-based care sure so some of the uh pilots that we we started out as we started down our path towards value-based care and value-based reimbursement is uh, really looking at how do we bundle services together so in a in a traditional model uh, payment model we reimburse uh, an addiction program for a daily rate in a program be it residential be it a partial hospital program an intensive outpatient program or just an office visit with a provider there's a there's a, a reimbursement rate for that day or or little piece of service what bundles of care do are start to uh, put all more services together and allow us to create a bundled rate uh, that covers multiple different kinds of services over a longer period of time. So for example, we have a pilot now where we've bundled some services together and, and reimburse a treatment provider on a monthly basis with an expectation that during that month, there have been individual services for addiction, there's been some potentially mental health therapy involved, uh, peer coaching and peer support services involved, and some other uh, wraparound services and, and therapy as well. All of that bundled together with one rate paid on a monthly basis uh, for care. As we as we start with those bundles, then you start to move into value-based care, which takes the reimbursement and really says, at the end of the day, we're gonna we're gonna shift the reimbursement from just paying for services to truly paying for outcomes and the value that we're trying to get from the service. So, specifically regarding outcomes, there, what kind of outcomes are you guys looking for um, in terms of you know addiction treatment? One of the big gaps that we see today in the addiction industry is that there, are, there haven't been, to date, any real national standards as to what are the best outcome measures or quality measures to understand what is good quality treatment and what is a, the expected and, and desired outcome. So we, we really to date have started with just looking at, well, what sort of data exists today that we have access to so we can start to move down this path. Some of that data are things as simple as readmission rates, how many people go back into a, a residential or inpatient treatment program after they've been discharged, uh, how many how many emergency room visits does, a, does an individual require while they're uh, in outpatient treatment, for example, we look at the total health care costs, uh, both across just the substance use treatment, but just across the person's entire health uh, as well, because we know if somebody is getting good quality substance use treatment, they're going to be better able to function and take care of their other health conditions as well, which will likely improve their total health as well as decrease total health expenses. So lots of different kinds of measures that exist today, uh, and, and we're starting with those as well as uh, we when we talk with 
different addiction providers understanding what data are they collecting from a quality and an outcome perspective. And so how do we share data with each other and come up with a way that we can agree to work together and work towards uh, creating a different kind of relationship? So a lot of addiction treatment providers obviously are tracking, you know, like sobriety or length of sobriety. Um, sometimes they do that internally, you know, sometimes it's done through a third party tracking. You know, what's your preference on Cigna's end in terms of who's tracking what? Well, certainly tracking the outcomes is important. And I think it, where we're at today is really just trying to make sure we find a place where tracking and measuring and reporting is consistent and as objective as we can make it, right? And and we're starting to have conversations with other groups as well as how do we start to work towards what's a national standard of, of a metric. So as we think about um, sobriety or how long somebody's been absent and what does that mean? How is how is that defined so that if Cigna or a, an addiction program in California measures that, it's going to be the same process and the same metric as an addiction program in Texas and a different health plan may measure it as well. And that will allow us to start to work towards consistent ways to define and, and ultimately collect and share that data. It's great that you bring that up because I think that's the, um, I don't know if you want to say a complaint or concern that most providers give is to say, okay, well, we don't know what to track because there aren't any standards. You know, so in your perspective, you know, do you guys have internal data at Cigna that you use or where do you recommend people start to create this standard for their own centers? Well, certainly recommend any, any center that is uh, looking to start measuring quality and, and measuring outcomes, start to just look at their own data and, and what they have access to and what they can start to collect on a regular basis. Um, and then ultimately be able to potentially have conversations about sharing that with Cigna or other payers as well. There are, there are efforts uh, that Cigna and other payers are involved in as well where we're starting to have conversations about how do, we, how do we start to define some national standards. One of the efforts that we're very active with right now is, is being led by Shatterproof, one of the leading nonprofits in addiction today. And, and Cigna was really proud, along with other health plans, to sign on about 18 months ago to what, we're just, what we call the eight national principles of care for substance use disorder treatment. And these were eight really high-level qualities of care that we said really define what we're, what we're talking about when we want someone to have quality. Things like uh, there should be universal screening for substance use disorders across medical settings. People should have rapid access to substance use disorder treatment. Uh, people should have access to FDA-approved medications when that's appropriate for their substance use condition. Things like that. We've gone further now, and Shatterproof is leading a, a uh, truly a coalition of providers, consumer advocates, policy advocates, and payers to, to develop a rating system for addiction treatment programs. And, and they, they will be piloting 
uh, the, the first iteration of that, that uh, rating program with various quality measures later this year in five states. And we're excited to uh, help support that as Cigna and, and participate to really see what efforts like that and others can, can do to help define and start to promote the development of some national standards. So I think what I'm hearing is, you know, individual providers should be tracking their own outcomes um, as much as possible. You know, if they have to start doing that internally, do it internally. If they can bring in a third party, that's probably better. Um, but at least start tracking, right? And then it sounds like there really aren't national standards in place yet. So use what you have right now, but eventually you want to align yourselves with, you know, possibly these national standards coming from Shatterproof or other organizations. You know, would that be a correct assessment? Absolutely true. It's not going to work if every addiction treatment program or every payer has different uh, quality measures down the road, right? We have to eventually get to a place where we can coalesce around some industry standards uh, so that we can all work together in a a much more cooperative way and make it uh, feasible for everybody to understand the measures and and repeatedly uh, provide them. So sometimes providers will say, you know, there are no national standards yet, so what should I be tracking? But I would make an assumption here that whether it's coming to you at Cigna or another insurance provider, um, that, you know, if you're at least tracking your own metrics, that you would look positively on that. You know, so some providers will say, well, we're just not going to do anything because there aren't any national standards. We'll wait, you know. Um, But if I'm a provider and I'm coming to you, would you look more positively on our program if we had established our own tracking metrics? The answer to that's going to be yes, right? We're we're going to be able to have a a deeper conversation about how can we partner, how can we work together, how do we as 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 leaders in the industry try to drive the development and the evolution towards more value-based models and and different uh, reimbursement relationships. We clearly continue to have traditional network providers that, that some of our customers uh, uh, see for treatment and we continue to reimburse them under traditional fee-for-service models. Uh, but as we move into the future, we're certainly looking for those partners and those programs who share an interest in how can we improve care, how can we improve uh, our relationships uh, and really drive better outcomes uh, better quality and better affordability for the system around uh, ongoing care. Sure. So you mentioned um, ER visits as a good example because those can get quite expensive. And I've heard other people talk about things like um, having a primary care physician or compliance with any prescriptions being given. Is that something also that you've seen as important in terms of your own metrics? Uh, absolutely. And I think. You know, the other thing to remember is there's no one perfect metric. There's no one measure that is ultimately going to be the perfect measure that defines quality. It really is a a set of measures that together will will be able to help us understand the substance use disorder care and outcome better. I mentioned the Shatterproof pilot that's coming up, and Shatterproof in their rating system really is going to be pulling data from 
providers and, and insurance claims, is going to be getting surveys from the addiction treatment programs themselves to submit some data and information about how they run their program, and they're also going to be collecting data directly from patients and consumers about their experience in programs. And by pulling all of that together, hope to be able to give a, a, a more comprehensive view of what the, the quality of a, a individual program may be. I think one of the challenges that providers face is, you know, I can think there's a really, you know, big, well-known program that will report that, you know, 80% of their clients stay sober after the year mark, I want to say. Um, but I'm sure you're aware that, you know, just contacting people is difficult. And so, you know, maybe you have this 80% positive metric, but it's really 80% of the people you were able to get in touch with, which is probably less than 10% of the total alumni population, right? Um, do you have any recommendations around, you know, good ways to try to collect or things you've seen from providers that you're working with, you know, that are better at collecting that data and getting in touch with people after they leave um, the treatment program? You know, you raise, a, you raise an important point, and certainly reaching out, finding, and, and having a, a follow-up conversation with, a, with an individual patient is, can be difficult, uh, but is very important when we talk about tracking outcomes. I think two things um, I, are, are happening out there as people try to find better ways to do this. One is that there are other organizations who have started to create a business model to help organizations, providers, et cetera, make those follow-up calls, do those follow-up surveys, collect that follow-up data, and take that workload off the shoulders of the, of the addiction treatment program itself to let them focus on the acute treatment. The other, the other thing is as, as programs develop, and as we move down the path towards truly value-based care and measuring those outcomes and ultimately reimbursing based on those outcomes, is that uh, some, some provider groups are starting to, to accept that they have a responsibility over time and across levels of care to continue follow-up uh, and, and maintain contact with uh, those patients. So rather than being responsible while they're in my program, but then when they're discharged and go home and go somewhere else, uh, I lose contact and lose follow-up. Some of the new value-based models that, that we look at, similar to a primary care physician or a specialist who may have a carry responsibility for someone for several months or a year, uh, uh, after a surgery or after a procedure or around a chronic condition. If a, a substance use program accepts more of that responsibility, they start to build in additional and new processes and parts of their treatment program that maintain that engagement for a longer time, which hopefully then make it easier to, to have that follow-up conversation later. Well, I'm glad you bring up that point because I think it's so important to be tracking outcomes, you know, post-treatment, right? Tracking outcomes within treatment is, is very different. You're in a very unique environment. It's very structured. You don't have a lot of options. Um, so true success is really going to come from, you know, actually once, what happens once you leave treatment. 
Now, we're talking about a couple metrics in there, like we mentioned ER visits, for example. So that's probably something a treatment provider is not going to be able to track. I assume that's more data that you're going to have on the back end in terms of claims. Um, but if you look at things like uh, connecting to a primary care physician or following prescription medication um, compliance, at the end of the day, it's really self-reporting, right? You know, is, is there a better way to do it than relying on self-reporting from the client, um, from the treatment provider's end? I think there are some things that uh, in today's world we may continue to have to rely on either provider or patient self-report, right? Um, but there are additionally we'll, we'll get the objective data from claims and there'll be some objective data and survey data and things that we can start to, start to uh, consistently track and measure that hopefully will allow us in total to give us a good picture of what has the outcome of this been. Now, is it possible um, with HIPAA regulations and everything, like let's say, could I come to Cigna and request some of that data in the aggregate? Um, so could I ask and say, hey, well, how many of our patients did see a reduction in ER visits in the year following treatment? Is that something that you guys would be able to provide or no? Yes, that's the kind of conversation that we're really interested in starting to have with, with treatment programs. And as we start to talk about how can we potentially bundle services into uh, an aggregated bundled rate and reimbursement, how do we think about outcomes and what we're going to measure and track? And when we do that, it gets back to as we then need to set a schedule where we sit down on a regular basis, maybe every three months, maybe every six months, and we share our data back and forth about what are we seeing, what is happening on the addiction treatment provider side, what are they seeing, and how are they feeling about the treatment and care of individuals that they see, and the payer, as Cigna, being able to share, here's the data we're collecting, uh, both from the addiction treatment, but also from emergency room visits, from primary care visits, from pharmacy adherence data and filling prescriptions, whatever it might be, being able to bring all that data back together, have that conversation so that we can work together to continue to improve the system and, and, and do an even better job for, for the patients. Yeah, I, th I think that's really where it's at, right, is that collaboration between the providers and the insurance. Um, because when we're all working together, you're going to be able to improve those patient outcomes. Now, a lot of providers are kind of under the assumption, I think, that if they start moving towards value-based care, that they'll be able to potentially get higher reimbursements depending on, you know, the positivity of their metrics. You know, is that a correct assumption for providers to make? Yes. So the goal of value-based reimbursement is really um, to take the limited dollars that are available across the whole system and how do we funnel those dollars to the, to the, the programs, the systems, the treatments that are providing better outcomes? How do we get more patients directed towards providers who are doing a better job and have better outcomes? And then how do we pay better for those better outcomes and those better services? So that's the goal of one of the goals of, of value-based care and, and as we get develop and build those reimbursement models delivering better outcomes may, may allow then um, higher reimbursement increases at the end of the year or maybe we work in a 
quality bonus payment, so there's additional money at the end of the year based on the outcomes and the measures that, that have been tracked for that year, things like that, that can ultimately uh, have the potential to increase the reimbursements uh, that the individual uh, addiction treatment program is receiving. So let's say that I'm a treatment provider and I want to pilot one of these programs with Cigna. Um, what's the best way to go about that? Because I've kind of heard that talking to the community reps doesn't quite get you where you need to go with these higher level conversations. You know, is there a process that they should be following? Well, I would say if uh, somebody's already in our network, starting with the assigned contractor and, and, and local representative is the place to start that conversation and say they're interested in having a higher level conversation. That rep will then go back to the organization to pull in the appropriate individuals to talk talk more strategically about where can where can we potentially go. Um, you know, if somebody uh, isn't in our network, for example, already, they, they certainly can go to uh, our our website at signa4hcp.com, and there's links there that allow them to say, I'm interested in the network, I'm interested in talking with people about a substance use disorder contract, and that will start the conversation as well. What would you suggest would be maybe a, a possible timeline for that? What should they be expecting in terms of how long that would actually take to um, reach a uh, contract point? Well, for a for as we're talking about new and evolving value-based contracts, those tend to have a longer tail and take a little longer for us to to put in place, just because there isn't a standard template yet. There aren't standard metrics. We need to understand each other, et cetera. So we we tend to take take our time in those higher level strategy conversations make sure we're truly on the same page together with at, between payer and, and and treatment provider work on agreement for how we're going to measure things what we're going to include in that treatment program and if we're creating a bundled rate for example what's in a bundle and what's the expectation those conversations take time and we need to work through those um, so that we're all comfortable and aware of, of, of what we're agreeing to. And the other part is we, as we have those conversations, is understanding that we are all agreeing that these are new and, and, and innovative contracts so that everybody understands if we, we try it that way and, and six or 12 months later say something's not working right, we need to be able to come back to the table and say we need to tweak it, we need to do it a little bit different, we need to try something else. Um, so it takes a little bit longer for this kind of contracting, uh, but certainly uh, uh, we're excited and looking in for, for partners and practices that want to have some of these conversations about designing treatment programs for the future. It sounds like it's really helpful to understand there. So it doesn't sound like there's actually a template for value-based care with a treatment provider currently, right? It sounds like they're mostly being kind of created on a case-by-case -case basis. Would that be accurate? Absolutely. You could almost say each one, and at least that signal that we create is, is its own pilot, and we're trying to see see how something works and if, and if that's scalable and, and workable. Uh, other payers probably have very similar processes and are trying similar things with, with, with multiple different providers. So it really is trying something new and seeing how it works and, and, and over time we'll get to where we 
have some standard templates, but we're, we, we aren't there yet. What would you like providers to bring to the table um, before they engage you with a value-based care conversation? When we have these conversations, it's really uh, important just to sort of have them come to the table with sort of what, a, you know, a description of what their program entails, a description of what they're offering to include or what they what they envision as a, uh, a true, broader, programmatic uh, solution, and then how they measure the quality, ongoing quality and outcomes of that program. Um, so we're looking uh, even at how do we potentially look at a, a more comprehensive treatment program. So some, some programs We've had conversations, for example, uh, where um, they continue to maintain contact and engagement um, for an entire year and are looking at a, a year's worth of treatment in a, in a bundle, right? And so they make, in, in that time, somebody goes from residential care to partial hospital care to intensive outpatient care to just 12-step follow-up and, and routine medication follow-up and all of that included in a bundle. Others were looking at a month of services in bundles and including all sorts of things in those bundles potentially that uh, uh, are evidence-based and, and part of, of what we know to be uh, effective treatment. So each conversation is different, but if they come with what they view as, as they can, what they can offer from a program standpoint and a and a value perspective, how they see measuring that and tracking it, and, and then ultimately that that desire to to be flexible, roll their sleeves up with a a payer to talk about how do we potentially contract in a different way, that will allow those conversations to to get started. So something I'm kind of curious on is you know obviously you have this potential for bonuses within a value based care system, and you know. With typical hospitals, there's also penalties for readmission rates and things like that. Um, I'm curious more on actually the non-value-based care, if you're doing fee-for-service, and I'm sure you guys track a lot of that data on the back end. If you see really high readmission rates with a particular provider, does that ultimately affect their reimbursement? From a traditional fee-for-service contract perspective today, it tends not to. Right, and we, as as we focus on tra- in the traditional world where we are reimbursing just for the volume of services, uh, it's it, there's less focus on the value, on the outcome. What are the metrics? It's what's the going rate for a day of intensive outpatient treatment or a day of residential treatment, and uh, we may look at some of those other things. Uh, and as part of an overall negotiation about how much of an increase in rates is uh, is appropriate, but but for the most part, it's really just the negotiation about how much does a day of treatment cost. It's really when we get into alternative reimbursements where we start to say, hey, uh, re- readmission rates matter, and and we're going to measure those, and if, at a certain level, that will achieve a bonus target or achieve a certain increase uh, in in reimbursement rates uh, for the next year. We also have started at Cigna to use some of the data around readmission rates 
ambulatory follow-up rates after discharge from detox or residential and things like that in determining who uh, becomes a center of excellence treatment within our network and who can start to be defined as one of our higher performing uh, addiction providers. You've been talking a lot about um, evidence sorry, evidence-based practice, which obviously I'm a huge advocate of, and the value there. You know, I'm kind of curious, and this is something I think we talked about a little before, is do you reimburse higher for those? So obviously we have our traditional, you know, CBT and DBT being provided in programs, but then you also have your music therapy or your equine therapy that is less evidence-based. Um, does that go into consideration either from a fee reimbursement standpoint or when you're looking to work and partner with a provider? Well, certainly as we look at providers and have conversations about moving to more value-based care, bundled payments, et cetera, um, we really are focused on looking at the evidence-based treatments that are being provided. Uh, that uh, That's going to be what we're interested in. That's what we all agree is, is going to, to likely drive the best outcomes for the individuals in that pro, in, in treatment programs. And so we're going to reimburse and contract appropriately for those services. Typically, when we look at in a traditional fee-for-service model where a program may offer some evidence-based treatments as well as some non-evidence-based treatments, uh, we tend to focus on, well, based on the type of service and what you are providing, uh, and, you know, what's, what's the going rate for those services. Um, so we're talking here a lot about uh, different evidence-based practices and, you know, what do you guys consider to be the most appropriate evidence-based practices based on the research we have today? You know, we certainly are looking at, um, as you mentioned, cognitive behavioral therapies. Uh, we're looking at motivational interviewing. We're looking at the use of, of medications when it's appropriate for opioid use disorder or alcohol use disorder, for example, things like that that are clearly evidence-based and, 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 and we want to see as part of a comprehensive treatment program when we're having conversations with, a, with an addiction treatment program. And then last time we spoke, um, we had a short conversation on outcomes related to inpatient versus outpatient. And, you know, decades of research has shown that really there is not a better outcome when it comes to inpatient versus outpatient treatment in, in most situations. Yet insurance still reimburses significantly more for inpatient than outpatient. And you had mentioned there was something related to maybe employers or what their employees wanted more so than what was necessarily effective. Can you comment on that a bit? Yeah, I think there's there's two related issues into into that question, and, and the first is when we think about outcomes and what what treatment drives the best outcomes from an inpatient versus outpatient perspective, and and most of the research that's been done has really said that treatment needs to be individualized, uh, and that across a population, any treatment program, be it inpatient versus outpatient versus uh, partial hospital, all drive similar outcomes across the population. So treatment needs to be individualized. Not everybody 
requires an inpatient stay or a residential stay, but not everybody's going to get better going just to outpatient treatment either. So that's that's one piece. The other piece is there is a culture in the United States that many people believe that going to substance use or addiction treatment means going somewhere for 30 days of treatment and then coming back home. And, and so we do see that in dealing with employers who, who are, are paying for the insurance or are individuals seeking care and their families, um, that at times there's an expectation or a belief that that an individual needs to go someplace for that 30 days of inpatient uh, if they're going to truly be able to get well. And, and, and so a lot more work needs to continue to be done to share information and educate people on the evidence-based practices, what's available in their community from an outpatient versus inpatient perspective, as well as understanding that there is no individual single treatment plan that is is most appropriate for for everybody everybody's care needs to be individualized to their uh, particular situation so i think that leads really well into the next questions around length of stay as well as documentation um so you know i think across the addiction treatment space especially for inpatient we've seen lengths of stay at least as far as initial approvals get shorter reimbursements drop you know over the past couple years um, is this related to this idea of what's appropriate to the patient or, you know, what, what comments do you have in terms of that kind of lowering length of stay reimbursement aspect? I think as in, in from a traditional model perspective, there's been a, a refocus around how much time does somebody truly need to be in inpatient or residential treatment before they are stabilized enough to go to a lower level of care at a partial hospital or intensive outpatient uh, level. I think as we have started to have these conversations about uh, bundled payment and value-based care, we're starting to have, be able to have conversations with programs that says, okay, we're not going to get into conversations with you about how many days do they need to be at residential and then in partial and then in intensive outpatient. Let's talk about what is an appropriate reimbursement and we'll let you as the program decide for each individual when they are appropriate for each level of care and as they step through treatment back to outpatient and create uh, more of that focus on the outcome uh, that we all want to get and, and, and allow us all to step away from uh, discussions about whether 12 days or 17 days at any particular level of care is what is needed. So then that kind of brings up this whole documentation aspect too. And, you know, we're in treatment centers a lot and we've seen some pretty horrible documentation. Um, do you have any common documentation or submission errors that you'd like to share that you maybe see on your end in terms of just things that providers should be looking out for and make sure that the clinicians are, are doing better or maybe not doing? I think, you know, the thing that we see is often uh, where there's problems, there's missing documentation. So uh, the documentation that what was happening in groups or why somebody is still there just doesn't seem to be there. Or 
often the documentation doesn't seem to fit what was billed. So they submitted bills for multiple days of a certain type of care, but when you get the documentation, the documentation doesn't read the way the bill looks like it should and would be expected for the documentation to read. And and I think the other part is really making sure that the documentation is individualized for that patient and not just a photocopy of the same typed note that gets put in the chart for the for the same named group uh, each time, right? So uh, those are the types of things I think that we sometimes see that, that raise uh, raise concerns or raise eyebrows when uh, we're trying to identify what's really happening uh, for an individual patient or the program. Yeah, you know, um, you don't need to comment on it, but I can just tell you on our end, like we just see it so often where, yeah, they're just photocopying or, you know, patient came to group today, did well, like it just <laughs> doesn't give you much information. Um, okay, so we've talked a lot about kind of moving towards value-based care. We haven't really touched on in-network contracts per se. Um, so you guys are obviously kind of encouraging people to go in network. What would you say is the advantage of going in network with Cigna versus staying out? I think the, the real advantages are you get a, a treatment program gets increased access to a much broader population. Um, if they're not in network, they really are limited to taking people who have additional resources, can pay out of pocket or pay the larger out of pocket fees at least for out of network care. Um, and being in network really allows them to have access to a, a broader population of people. Uh, it, it's going to increase the number of referrals that someone uh, like Cigna, a payer, is able to make to, to uh, encourage or, or offer their treatment program to uh, an individual or family who's seeking help. It's more visible in the insurance company's directory. Uh, you, you get to be part of the conversation about how the health systems and the substance use treatment uh, industry are evolving, how contracts evolve, uh, and you, uh, and then you ultimately, at the end of the day, are going to be able to be considered to be identified as a center of excellence, or 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 get special consideration even at some level, uh, depending on on where the contract goes. If you're part of the network, and all of those things are not available if you if a, a program doesn't. To participate with with the insurer. That's something I think I'd like to comment on. Is at least a recommendation that we often make to providers is you know sometimes they'll complain that their in network rate is much lower right than out of network, um, or maybe it's not enough for them. But our point of view is that you're starting that relationship right, and like you just said it allows you the opportunity to prove because there's no trust there, right? Maybe you guys haven't worked together before. So how do they know that you're going to be a provider of excellence? So you have to build that relationship and maybe that starts off at a lower reimbursement, but over time, if you prove yourselves to be a quality provider that's delivering the outcomes for the patients, um, that's going to help them in their lives, then that allows you to deepen that relationship and, and perhaps increase um, reimbursements over time. Is that correct? Absolutely, and I, you know, we have seen some programs that traditionally did not uh, see the value in partnering with with insurance and payers 
really change their practice model, start to have those conversations, and it has really driven a change in, in the relationship, in in the contracting rates, and the uh, really ability to, to be recognized as, hey, they truly are a really good, high-quality provider, and we started to really drive more business in their direction. So um, without coming into network and starting those conversations and working together as partners, you can't get there. Now, occasionally in like super saturated areas like South Florida, for example, um, there's a lot of providers. And so sometimes we hear that they want to go in network, but the um, insurance payer responds that they have enough in network contracts in that area. What would you suggest a provider do if they still want to go in network, but you know that was a statement made to them? Yeah, I think uh, it it's important, and 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 depending on the program and what they offer, again, I, it's important for the program to be able to have, come back to the payer and say, look, here's what I offer, and here's the value I can bring, and and I think that your network, regardless regardless of how many other providers in that saturated area may be already in the network, here's the value I bring that separates me from everybody else. Again, how do we start that conversation and how do we get there? We know that there's a lot of people who have a substance use disorder who aren't accessing treatment today, and we you need to really make sure as a payer, as any payer, that we're really focusing on making sure we have as much access and availability and, 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 and the ability to meet each individual's needs uh, in all of, the, all of the markets and geographies. And so worth those conversations and to really focus on here's what's different, here's what value I bring, uh, and why I think it, it would be of benefit to your your customers as a payer to have me in your network. And for those in con or sorry in network contracts, um, are there requirements that they have to have? Like, do they have to have JCO or CAR for accreditation, or you know, what are kind of the prerequisites for applying for in network? Yeah. So for Cigna, and that's um, what I'm familiar with, programs are required to be licensed by the state to provide treatment, and and they also we do require accreditation by Joint Commission CAR for. Um, organizations like that. Okay. Uh, so let's kind of move on to, I want to touch on um, MAT or MAT a little bit. Does Cigna have a preference in terms of MAT or non-MAT programs, at least as, as it regards um, opioid uh, abuse? MAT and medi- medications for opioid use disorder are really important. They're, 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 a, they're clearly an evidence-based treatment, uh, and we want to be sure that every individual who has an opioid use disorder has the opportunity to be evaluated and assessed for the option of, of, of being treated with, with those medications. Um, so we, we do look for comprehensive programs that offer medications uh, as, as part of the treatment. It doesn't mean that absolutely every single patient will end up on medication, but we expect that more will um, when they when they are appropriate and when the programs are offering a truly comprehensive approach um, so uh, regardless of level of care be it a residential program or an outpatient program really sort of understanding who incorporates medication treatment into their treatment as well as the 
recommends how they, they follow up uh, with ongoing care is an important uh, piece that we look at. Within the marketplace today, I mean, we really see a, a division, right? I mean, so I think most, if you look at residential or PHP or even IOP, I think most providers probably provide Vivitrol these days, um, but they don't provide methadone or buprenorphine, and they're often actively um, resistant to it in many cases. Um, so we see this marketplace where you have the MAT providers offering um, Suboxone or uh, methadone you know, as their own model, where it's a very low reimbursement, very high volume. And then you have the residential providers in the PHP that are more abstinence-based and, and don't have those. Um, just kind of wondering your thoughts about the trends um, or maybe where Cigna sees it going. Do you see an integration of those models happening? Is that what you'd like to see? Or do you think they're going to stay separate for whatever reason? Well, we're really focusing on working with programs to really create a, a, a comprehensive model. Um, so really trying to look beyond what, what happens just in detox or just in residential or just in the partial hospital program. And, and in doing that, we, again, have started different kinds of pilots and, and different programs to partner with some detox and residential programs where we can even make Vivitrol uh, available more quickly by on our end partnering with the pharmacy as well as, as the, the, the substance use side if a provider thinks Vivitrol may be an option, being able to make sure that the pharmacy can get the medicine there and, and get it covered and all those things in, uh, in, in a way that is effective uh, and efficient for, for the patient before discharge and get them started in care uh, before they leave. Uh, same with same with buprenorphine. Looking at, you know, someone may have a great residential program, but of those which truly incorporate medication-assisted treatment into the model and get people started in care before they discharge them to outpatient follow-up. And how do we understand who those people are, those programs? How do we make sure that um, individual patients are aware of what's available at different types of programs when we're looking for a truly comprehensive, holistic approach to their care. So it sounds like you're talking about, and it's perfectly fine to either not necessarily incorporate into your program itself, but partner with other providers in the community and make sure that there's overlap or that there's handoffs of care happening in those situations, um, which kind of brings us back to more of a value-based care model and maybe an ACO model, you know, where you're working with other providers. In terms of ACOs, where do you see addiction treatment providers fitting in or who do you think they should be partnering with in the community um, to be most effective for the patient? Well, I think there's a couple different kinds of models out there that people are starting to experiment with. And, uh, you know, as I mentioned, Cigna has over 250 partnerships with different primary care and specialty medical groups. And so we've had some conversations with them about who are the go-to, who's the go-to substance use provider in the community and the market, and how do we build partnerships with some of those existing uh, medical ACOs to prioritize access, um, get immediate initiation of MAT going, 
maybe start to figure out how we can even begin buprenorphine in an emergency room if necessary and schedule next day follow-up with the substance use provider the next day? How do we engage the peer supports? How do we get all of the care coordination involved on both sides around that to give the person the best the best coordination, make sure that people are able to share records and truly provide a whole person approach to that individual's substance use disorder as well as whatever other medical conditions they have. I was going to ask in terms of the sharing records, um, obviously you have a lot of HIPAA issues that come up there. Do you have any recommendations in, or things that you've seen um, organizations do that make that easier? Well, clearly because of and the privacy rules, HIPAA and 42 CFR Part 2, especially, you know, there, are, there are issues and we have to get signed releases and those kinds of things. But again, if you have a relationship and can start to have those conversations between a treatment provider and a, a medical group, you're able to start to think about how do we put a process in place where those releases of information uh, are part of the standard process. You can have a conversation with the individual uh, as well to help them understand the importance of all of the coordinated care that they will have access to and, and the ability to truly drive improved outcomes and ultimately improve that uh, record sharing and coordination. Okay. And then you were going to say something else. I, w- I think I was going to move. There's other other areas where instead of wrapping all of the substance use services around the medical ACO, there's also the ability for a treatment program to, to build their own uh, coordinated care system, right, especially from a substance use perspective. And you were asking about how do they choose partners. Uh, but somebody may have a, a really good residential program today, um, but they need to find some partners who on one side may do the detox first, on others may provide a a day treatment, intensive outpatient program, outpatient follow-up, and start to create a system of a a more comprehensive approach. Or they may be really good at at the more traditional non-MAT part, the the, uh, psychosocial treatment part, and they need to find a provider to partner with who can offer evaluations and and then ongoing follow-up for those who are started on medication-assisted treatment as well. And how do you potentially start to put some of those partnerships together as well uh, into a systemic approach to the population that you're serving? So that would probably be something good for the provider if they have those relationships in place to bring to the table when they're coming to you for pilots or value-based care, right? Say, hey, you know, this is what we do, but we also partner with these organizations over here. We communicate regularly to ensure, um, you know, more of a holistic approach to patient care. Exactly. And, and, you know, we are more interested in looking and talking with those programs that have a comprehensive approach. We want to be sure that the customer is going to have access to the full range of treatment and an ongoing and really a, a comprehensive treatment plan that's going to best address their uh, needs. We, are, we know that that's not always going to be one provider and one program that can, can do all of that by themselves. So having those partnerships and bringing that to the table in those conversations is really helpful. Okay, great. I think that's really important for um, listeners to understand there. 
So uh, kind of a different question that we had that came up um, at the executive marketing retreat this year is a panel member had shared that one of the reasons that insurers rate reimbursed so high for urine screens for a certain period of time was due to um, lower profit margins. So the comment was made that there are certain KPIs or metrics, you know, in terms on the back end for different insurance providers and that they have to keep those profit margins at a certain, let's say 15%, for example. And so because profits were too high, they had to get that down and urine screens were an easy way to do that. Um, I know you said that that's not correct. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, I would say that you know it's it's there's nothing further from from the truth, right? We as as payers, we've been paying for substance use, urine, drug screens for many years, for decades, and it was never really a problem until several years ago, when all of a sudden a subset of providers uh, really started charging uh, larger amounts for those billing them on a more regular basis and really trying to drive revenue through what they thought was lack of oversight on the payer side uh, for those for those tests. As, as Cigna and other payers identified these issues, most of the payers immediately, as quickly as possible, put processes and policies in place to assure that the urine drug screens and other lab tests were appropriate, and we you know, want, and obviously urine drug screens are an important part of, of drug treatment, and so people need access to that, but we need to make sure that the use is appropriately, and unfortunately, the people who were hurt the most over those couple of years were the very patients who were seeking help and vulnerable and ended up, to some degree, getting taken advantage of and ended up with the burden of these inappropriate high-cost services at times, uh, and, but... Uh, I would say in today, in, in 2019, for the most part, the, the policies, the processes have all been put in place now, and, and, and so um, lab, urine drug screen and lab test use is, is not as big of an issue today as it was maybe two or three years ago. Yeah, I agree. I, I love that you made that comment of you know what's appropriate and what's best for the patient, because I think... I mean, we saw it even on the back end, you know, with internal conversations or things that we've come across, you know, where certain providers were just expecting, you know, the payer to pay ridiculous amounts for things like urine drug screens as if they were entitled to that level of reimbursement. Um, you know, and really, I think that it's not, the onus is on the provider to do what's right and what's appropriate for the patient and not, like you said, use it as um, a revenue driver, you know, um, in, in those cases. Uh, so we've covered a lot of ground here. Is there anything that's going on at Cigna that you would like to mention or things that you've seen coming up that you think would be important for listeners and providers to understand? Uh, I think it's just uh, I really have appreciated the conversation. We're, we're very excited about evolving our partnerships with providers. We've, we've created this center of excellence network for substance use disorders now at Cigna and have some key partners that we are really working with and we're continuing to, to, to pilot and look at the opportunities to, to drive further, further evolution of value-based care. And so I think these conversations will continue. I think what we see and, and, and as we learn what works and, and, and can develop scale and templates, um, this will be really positive for the whole industry and, and ultimately for, for patients seeking care. 
Well, thank you, Doug. I really appreciate you coming on the show. I mean, the answers were fantastic, and I think it's so helpful for people to understand, um, you know, your perspective when and the insurance payers are coming from. Um, if a provider is looking to contact you or Cigna, let's say they don't even know who their local rep is, you know, where do they start? How, how do they initiate that con- communication? Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, they can go to Cigna4HCP.com and follow the links on that page to, to reach us, or they can call us at 800-926-2273 and get connected in that way to start conversation as well. Thank you again, Doug. Really appreciate it. And as always, a podcast here is brought to you by uh, Circle Social Inc., strategic marketing and uh, operational consultants. So we appreciate your time. And, you know, if you have any further questions, uh, I always appreciate listeners reaching out and letting us know.